what you turn with me now uh, in the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, our text this morning will be uh, 3 through 8, but I'm going to just go ahead and have us read 1 through 11. So will you stand with me, whether you're here or whether you're watching on live stream, stand up out of and respect for the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you've no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they were saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, you're not in the darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. But let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are doing. As we come into our text this morning and to prepare our way for some exposition, I think it will be useful for us to just take a moment here and connect to uh, the flow of thought in the context. And, of course, the Apostle has been uh, speaking now for uh, several verses about the return of the Lord at the end of the age. And so uh, we saw back in chapter 4 at the end there that he spoke of the Lord's return and, and he did it in a particular connection. He spoke to the fears and the concerns of the people of God. There was an apparent lack of understanding about just how those who had passed on, who had died in Christ, would partake of the blessings and the joy of the day of Jesus Christ. And so there was weeping and mourning. And the apostles said, I don't want you to be like that. You're believers. I want you to mourn Christianly, not as pagans, as those who have no hope. I, I want you to, to mourn as those who have the brightest hope of all because it's in Jesus Christ and that hope is simply this, that when Jesus Christ returns at the end of the age in power and glory and with the blast of the trumpet and the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ will rise first. They miss nothing. And so having encouraged the saints with that word and asked them to, to speak this word of encouragement to one another, he pivots at the beginning of our chapter in verse 1 
And he continues to speak about the day of the Lord. He's speaking about the same theme. He's speaking about the same event. But he does so in relationship to another association. He's not talking about resurrection now. As he, as he pivots and comes uh, into chapter 5 full steam, he speaks of the day of the Lord in terms of its connection with the day of judgment. And he does so in, I would say, some ominous terms, right? He speaks of this day, this coming day of the Lord, as a thief in the night, as a day which captures uh, the unbeliever unawares, slumbering, unaware of what's about to befall them in terms of the return of the Lord and the judgment which will flow from it. He also speaks of it being as the day of travail, as, a, as of a woman who is going into childbirth, as, as an event which when it comes, there will be no turning back. It is an irreversible thing which occurs in that day. And he speaks about how people are responding to that. You see, and the aim of this chapter is not so much to speak about what the unbelievers are doing. It is to set up by way of contrast about how we are to behave as believers in view of the things that we know will happen. And so he goes through a series of contrasts here in our text, speaking about the unbeliever and then back to the believer. But the aim of the apostle is the same throughout this section. It is simply this, to call the people of God to, to moral duty, to call the people of God to moral duty in view of the certainty of the coming of the day of the Lord, particularly now in judgment. And we can summarize that moral duty in two simple words, sober living. The duty of the people of God in view of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment is sober living. We are to live uprightly and morally in a particular way. And so I want to think about that great theme and call it to duty of sober living in three parts. We'll notice it's a moral duty. It has a redemptive basis and it has a martial condition. So let's think through it this morning here. First of all, it is a moral duty. And I want us to see here as we come into our text uh, that the apostle has already addressed the believers in verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day of the Lord would overtake you as a thief in the night. But you see, what's kind of important there is that first word, but, as he says, but you. This is, I guess, what you'd say the, the first set of contrasts in our passage because uh, what the apostle is doing there is he's contrasting whatever follows in verse 4 is how the believer is thinking with what he's just said in verse 3 and perhaps before about the unbeliever. So look at your text. And I want you to see here how the unbeliever is living and how they are doing and how they are being in view of this coming. We're told in verse 3, they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like the labor pains of a woman with child, and they will not escape. It's very clear to hear the way the apostle stitches together his thought with the set of contrast here between the unbeliever and the believer, that he would have us grasp hold of, of the weight and the significance of this call to moral action 
by understanding it in contrast to those who have no hope and to those who don't believe. And there's three things that are indicative of how the believer, or rather the unbeliever, lives in view of this great and coming day. And the first of those elements is a mentality. The first of those elements is a particular mentality. Look again at verse 3. The mentality is expressed succinctly in the words, peace and safety. Peace and safety. Now let's connect that to the verse right before it. In verse 2, the apostle has said to uh, the Thessalonians, he doesn't need to write to them about epochs and times. In verse 2, because you yourselves know the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And now he goes on to say, while you know that, and while that's true, here's what the unbeliever is doing. While that threat of the return of the Lord as a thief in the night in judgment hangs over their cloud, over their head, like a, a thick black cloud, here's what they say. Peace and safety. You see, this is their mentality. Instead of being in a state of preparation, they are in a state of denial. You might say their response to the Christian proclamation of the coming day of the Lord as a thief in the night, you might say they would summarize it as fake news. See, there's a real sense of smugness in this. This word safety is a word which means security, and it brings with it this sense of a sense of self-assurance about it. That how things are, are fine. We're secure, and we're in complete control. And that's an interesting mentality, but um, this is not the only time Scripture describes this mentality. Uh, in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, we have a very similar description of the unbelieving mentality when it says, scoffers say, where is the promise of his coming? See that? This is the unbeliever. This is the scoffer. And their, um, their question flows from a, a conviction or a belief system. And Peter says, Forever, uh, this is what they say, forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. Do you understand the rationale that, that underpins the irreverence and the indifference of the unbeliever as they cry out before the prospect of the day of the Lord that everything is peace and safety and all is secure? Their belief system is spelled out right here. The future is just like the past. The future is just like the past. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, it all continues as it was. You see, the basic point of view of the unbeliever is this. We don't live in a world where God comes down and invades it. If there is a God, that's fine, but he is in a box somewhere. And this age is an age which is sealed off from the action of God. This age is just 
a natural age. It's just a natural world. It's a place of cause and effect. God's not going to march down from on high and, and dabble in this world and, and put his finger in the events of, of history. You see, it's a godless perspective, and I find it's quite similar to the attitude that prevails today among unbelievers. They would never concede, even if they thought there was some sort of godlike thing out there, they would ever have any interest whatsoever in bringing it into this age. They're more likely to believe that eventually that will just sort of spin out of control and spontaneously self-combust and they can bring themselves to believe that because that's natural. But this idea of some God being concerned to return to bring judgment for sin is mythological and it's infantile and it's as old as the hills. It's not new. You don't have to use a toaster or a microwave to be so cynical. It's as old as the time that Peter was writing. And so what do they do in view of this? Peter explains it. They just pursue their own lusts. And this is what James, this is what Paul is getting at here in our text as he, as he refers to the unbeliever and their action of sleeping at night and, and getting drunk at night. They're just living for now. They're living for their appetites and consumption. This is the mentality. But then I want you to notice also the moral makeup of those who say such things. And we can see that for ourselves in verse 5. For you are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night and we're not of the day. And so again, we have sharp contrast here, light and darkness. And it's quite obvious the apostle says we are not of the darkness that he's implying. This is what the unbeliever is. They are of the darkness. They are of immorality. They are of the realm and the kingdom of Satan, who the Apostle Paul calls the, the God of this age who blinds the eyes of its citizens and inhabitants, 2 Corinthians 4. 4. This is them. This is the moral makeup of the people of this age. They are in rebellion against God. They live in unbelief. Because their minds have been blinded to not see the truth and to believe it. And that particular moral makeup leads to the mentality of peace and safety. And so the third element of who these people are and how they believe is the behavior. You see, their ideas also affect their life. We've been spending a great deal of time lately emphasizing how behavior is to be shaped by belief. For the Christian behavior is to be shaped by belief, by doctrine, by biblical ideas. But it's also the case that the world behaves according to its beliefs as well. And you can see their behavior spelled out here in verse 7. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, they get drunk at night. Now Calvin's comment here helps us grasp. The sense here, it's, it's metaphorical. That's what he's doing. He's speaking in terms of metaphor. He says when he speaks of sleep and drunkenness, he does not mean natural sleep or drunkenness from wine, but stupor of mind, forgetting God, 
and indulging vice. That's exactly the sense here. Stupor. Stupor of mind. Fogginess. Spiritual fogginess. Moral insensitivity. Forgetting God. Living for and indulging in vice. And Calvin goes on to say that this behavior flows from the deepest sense of contempt for God. Oh, it pretends to be irreligious. I know that. I'm reminded of the conversation that I had with a particular gentleman who uh, kept telling me about his peace and safety motto for living. And he said, you know, uh, I, I, I live every single moment of my life in the now. He said, I, I don't waste my time thinking about the future I want to squeeze every bit of goodness and happiness out of every single moment of my life. And that's why I don't waste my time thinking about tomorrow. As the conversation proceeded, the man went on to inform me that he'd been married for 50 years. And one of the things that he had discovered in the course of 50 years of marriage is that um, it gets in the way of enjoying every moment. He said, my wife and I, when we first got married, used to be able to talk for hours and we found each other interesting. Now, 50 years later, we have nothing to say by, besides her asking me, uh, what did I do today? And once I repeat that, the conversation's over. And he lamented that with bitterness because it was getting in the way of enjoying now. And towards the end of the conversation, he told me he was going to sell his beautiful house in Laguna Niguel and... Um, clear out of the prophets and move to Costa Rica so that the end of his life could go out with a bang. He said, it's the most beautiful place in the world to live. Peace and safety. Stupor. Forgetfulness of God. Indulgence. The vices. The sense that we're in control. The apostle said, this is how people live who know that the Lord is coming, but refuse to believe it, and they reject it in, un in unrighteousness. It leads to a mentality. It leads to, a, it's a, underpinned by a moral makeup, and it leads to certain kinds of behavior. But I want us to know this, and I think it's very important, because I said, I want us to get into the behavior of the unbeliever, because I said, Paul has intentionally placed that in here by way of contrast, so that we as believers will grasp the force of the moral call to us. So that we don't behave that way. And one of the things that I, I think that we must look upon, and, and we do so not with cheerfulness, with, but with um, some degree of concern because we don't want to see this happen to people. But uh, still, yet this is what the Lord says will happen. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. The message of the Apostle Paul to the peace and safety generation and crowd is this. You might as well live it up today because that day is coming. And here's the thing that everybody needs to know. It's inescapable. You see, he switched metaphors here. The first time was the thief in the night. It was surprise. But now as he comes into the end of verse 3 to reinforce the strength of his admonition and his criticism of the unbelieving ways. It's like a, 
a pregnant lady whose day has come to give birth. And, and here the, the force of the image is not necessarily surprise. Well, there may be some element of surprise to it, but, but a pregnant woman looks for that day. She plans for that day. In fact, she likely wants that day to come. But here's the thing about that day of delivery. Once it comes, there's no turning back. You can't put the baby back inside. The point is there's an inevitability to it. And once it comes, it is absolutely irreversible. And this is what he's saying about the mentality of peace and safety. It's irreversible and judgment and destruction will come. I want you to see that word there in verse 3. Destruction is the very same term that is used in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9 as Paul speaks about the day of judgment when Christ returns. And he says, uh, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. See that? This is what he's already saying here in our text in verse 3, that this is what awaits the peace and safety crowd. And I think it's so important that we lay hold of this. Because it can cross the mind of the believer from time to time. There's sort of a drag to be a Christian. There's so much out there to do, so much to explore, so much to be a part of and to take part in. And here am I waiting for some day of the Lord which hasn't come yet, denying myself while the world around me is enjoying the park. Paul is realistic as he speaks to Christians. He says, yes, you can look and see at the lifestyle of the unbeliever. But he says, what you need to know about is that lifestyle is under judgment. And so instead of being fascinated with it and wooed by it and drawn to it, Paul would have us see the horror that awaits it. All of that stands in the backdrop now to the elements of moral duty which emerge now in our text. And, and I say there's elements of moral duty here because you can see one duty in verse 8 as he says, but since we are of the day, let us be sober. But again, since uh, this falls at the end of a series of contrasts, we can just look back to verse 6 and see him flesh out a little bit more of the outline of moral duty. It's the same set of principles and ideas. So then, let us not sleep, but let us be alert and be sober. So we can put that together and we can come up with a few elements now. What is the call of the believer in view of the coming day of the Lord? And the first thing is to not sleep. And again, this isn't... Um, Physical, as Calvin said, this is metaphorical in the sense of the image is that of stupor of mind. It is to be morally insensitive. It is to be spiritually dull. And the command is present tense, so this is to be something ongoing. We are not to be those who are characterized by moral insensitivity and spiritual dullness. It's not our calling to slumber our way through life in a spiritual and moral fog. It is a call to the highest level of spiritual readiness. Now, Jesus talks about this in the Gospels, and he admonishes his disciples, and beyond them, the, the whole church. 
about the state of readiness they're to be in as they prepare for and wait for his return. And uh, he tells the believers they're to be in readiness in case he should come and, well, find them asleep. You see, Christ speaks of what a great dishonor it would be in the last day for the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that great shepherd of the sheep, to return to his church and to his people to find them sleeping. He says the call of the church is to be awake, morally sensitive, spiritually quickened and alive, being ready. And then we add to that here, this other duty of verse 6, alert. It's a military term. It is to be on watch. It is to be on guard. It speaks of the highest level of vigilance and alertness. It's a perpetual state of alertness, morally and spiritually. And then finally, we come to the last one, perhaps the most clear of the images, as he says here in verse 8, let us be sober. Let us be sober. Well, what is that? Again, it says Calvin spelled it out. It's... It's to not live in spiritual stupor, forgetfulness of God, indulgence of vice. Calvin even warns here in that particular section, he says uh, that um, the believer is taught to use the word spare, the world sparingly so that we won't be entangled by its allurements. To use the world sparingly. You see, the affections of our heart can betray the truth very often. And the affections of the heart for the things of this age can often overwhelm us. And that's exactly what the apostle was warning against here. And the apostle John does that in a very different way. If you think about uh, 1 John chapter 2, I think it's somewhere around verses 15 or 16 or 17. He looks at this age and, and all of its trinkets and all of its allurements and all of its creature comforts and all that, it's, uh, all that it offers. And he says all of it is simply a system waiting judgment. You see, that is the sense of sobriety, a certain awareness of the fact that though the things that God has made are good that are within this creation. They are not to be substitutes and false gods and idols to be worshipped. And Paul warns about this. He says, there are those people who literally treat their stomach as their God. That's kind of a vivid way to speak. But but it's to say there are those who treat their appetites and their affections and the things they long for as if they were an idol to be worshipped and served. He says, that's not the believer. That's a good thing we don't have to worry about that here, huh? There's no trouble with that here where we live, right? No trouble with that in the culture or time we live. There's no one crying out in street corner after street corner for us to find some ultimate delight and satisfaction in the world around us, to indulge our sensitivities and our appetites, to find our ultimate hopes and dreams right here now, what we can find. It's the... Fallen human condition. The apostle says here, be sober. And there's something very powerful about it that the apostle would have us seize on. He's back to verse 4. He says, but you, brethren, but you, brethren, 
in contrast to those who are in the peace and safety crowd. He says, but you, you're not in the darkness. You see, the the sense of, of moral calling here is powerful. As the Apostle Paul says, you know. You're being warned, you know. And your beliefs about the future, about what's going to happen when Christ returns, and about the day of judgment is a set of theological convictions that are to shape your life now. Oh, I know no one wants to think about this. We would all prefer to think about the Bible as a set of maybe principles to help us live, have a little better life. Who wants to talk about dying? Who wants to talk about judgment? Who wants to talk about the return of Christ? The answer is God does. And he says, if you are among those who are the brethren, the redeemed, those of faith, these are things for you to think about. They're worth your time. They're worth your attention. Because these beliefs are to grip your soul and your life so they shape your behavior. There's a clear call to moral duty here. Just summarize, be sober. Don't be in a spiritual fog or morally insensitive because you have just become uh, allured by this age. Be careful, he says. So that's the calling. We have a clear moral calling and now now we turn to see the the redemptive basis. He's told us about it and we need to think about, well, how in the world do we do this? He's told us about the duty. It seems clear enough. He's, he's developed it by way of comparison and contrast. But how do we do it? And, and I think it's, it begins with uh, turning to verse 8 and seeing how the apostle himself sets up this thought. He says, but since we are of the day, let us be sober. And I think it's important here to grasp hold of this, to, to, to grasp the, the grammar here. And I, I know that can make our... Our eyes just glaze over. But, but if, we're, if we're reading the text as, as it emerges, the sense of it is this. Under the condition of, or in the circumstance of, being children of light, let us be sober. You see, the apostle is saying there is a condition or a circumstance which is inseparably connected to the moral action. And that circumstance is identity. Children of light. Being children of light. But what does that mean? That's the redemptive basis. So look back in your text, for instance, to verse 5. He says, for you are all sons of the light and sons of of the day. Again, we're we're back to this set of contrasts here. And it's, it's very obvious in verse 5 that Paul contrasts light and day with night and darkness. These are spiritual categories. These are spiritual realities. We've already pointed out that darkness is about is about moral rebellion. It's about fallenness. It's about being in league with the satanic and, and darkness. So this is the spiritual antithesis then. The light and the day. 
And so he's speaking this way, saying you are a son of it. He's saying that you are somebody as a believer who has experienced the redeeming grace of Christ. To be a son of the light, to be a son of the day, is to be somebody who's experienced this special adoptive relationship into the family of God. That you are children of God by adoption. That you're those who have been regenerated. That you are those who have been redeemed by grace. You've been transformed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He says, this is what you are. He speaks in terms of identity. Identity. And based upon our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, let us be sober. So it's important here to understand the, the pathway to fulfilling the moral calling to, to let us be sober is to seize the redemptive grace which is ours in Christ. To be a son of light and to live soberly is not the prescription of a program of self-improvement. It is not the prescription of some uh, moral pathway to being a better you. No, it's something that flows out of what you've experienced in Christ. I think this is so important to say here. The Apostle Paul is not prescribing a way to be better in behaviors. He's thinking here about what we are. And I am really, I don't know how often you hear about this, but I have to say, I am really getting fed up with constantly being lectured by the world around us about being a better you. This is all over the podcast world, if you're at all interested in that. It seems like every time somebody who's done some great feat or thing or is known for being somebody who excels at certain things that invariably in the flow of the podcast, you'll find out that really what drives them in all they do, and this is always so obviously set up by questions fed to that person by the interviewer, it always gets down to the bottom line. Oh, you know, Joe, what drives you to be this way? Here inevitably is the response. You yeah. know, glad you asked that question, Bill. I yeah, what I'm really passionate about is being just a better me. There's no better you. The apostle is not speaking in that language of being a better you. There is no better you. There's a fallen you. There's a sinful you. There's a depraved you. All there is is a better Christ. This is how this flows out of us, is us being in Christ, his righteousness being our righteousness, his blood being shed to cover our sin, his life flowing in us, our being united unto him. That's how we're better. I'm all for somebody wanting to be better so society is not in utter mayhem around us. I'm not interested in everybody being as awful as they possibly could be so it destroys any basic sense of civil peace. So I think we can say it's a good thing, I suppose, when People improve themselves so they're not, uh, they're not destructive. But, but there's no hope in it. It's just an end. It has um, a temporal point of termination. And it falls short of the glory of God. The call to moral action in Scripture never flows from that premise of you just trying to be a better you. 
we can make sure our understanding about the call to a moral life flows from what the Bible says. It flows from a redemptive reality that is true about us. Christ is our righteousness and our life. And because the Son of God has become incarnate to make us adoptive sons of the living and the true God, and He has called us to grace, then there's a way to live that shows that we bear some family resemblance because of the grace that we've received. So the apostle says here, the first condition for this life of being sober is being sons of the light. But there's another thing here in our text that's a part of this call to sober living. And this is what I call a martial condition. Uh, it's a military condition, if you will. And, and, and I, I get that from, from the very language of our text here as the apostle calls upon the believer to armor up. Notice what it says here in verse 8, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Again here, we, we see another condition. The very structure of our text tells us that that under the condition now of having put on this breastplate of faith and love and this helmet as the hope of salvation, we pursue the call to sober living. We saw the first necessary condition that's to be in Christ. It's to be a, a son of the light by grace. But here Paul brings in another one. He says, without this, the calling won't proceed. The, moral, the call to moral action won't get very far. It'll be like a car empty of gasoline that sputters right down the block and comes to a halt. Something else that must come alongside it here. He says, having put on. And so there's something to do here. And it's clear that it has occurred. We can see having put it on. But since Paul joins it to uh, the condition of being sober, regularly, perpetually, persistently, this is something to be maintained. So there's two things that we're called to do. And the first is to put on the breastplate of faith and love. The breastplate of faith and love. Now, we, we know what this breastplate was because the apostle is, is thinking in terms of the gear, if you will, or the, the armor uh, of a Roman soldier. And we know that Apostle Paul was very well aware of this because he walked around chained to him. I'll bet you had time to study it and see what it looked like. These Roman soldiers were connected to him just about everywhere he went for years of his ministry. And so he, he starts here by, by talking about this essential piece of, of armor. It's called the breastplate. And literally in the Greek, it's the thorax. And we get our English word thorax from that. It means that area from your neck down to your waist. This breastplate was a, was a chain mail piece of armor which would have extended from the neck to the waist and around the rib cage and over the upper portions of the back. Now just think of that. This is a heavily armed soldier. That means with that breastplate on, whether an arrow was being shot from behind or in front, it couldn't penetrate that. If they were in a battlefield situation with swords and spears flying all around them, this soldier with this breastplate on is protected fully, front, back, and side, 
from the piercing of a javelin to the thrust of a sword, the thorax, the breastplate was on for total 360 degree protection. And that's what the apostle appeals to here as he speaks about this necessary condition for letting us be sober, fulfilling this moral calling and duty. He says, this is what you need to put on this breastplate. Notice now its parts or its elements or what it's made of. And the first is faith. The breastplate of faith. And we know when the apostle speaks that way, he's speaking subjectively. He's talking about your faith. Calvin looks at this and he says, we know what this faith is for. This faith is for repelling the attacks of the devil. His commentary is beautiful. He says, we know what this is for. This is for repelling the attacks of the devil. Of the devil. And you say, well, Calvin, where in the world did you get that? Well, James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Peter's very aware of the struggle of the believer in this age. It's a struggle of spiritual warfare. There is going to be plenty of time, and there will be seasons of spiritual attack. And, and, and James says, here's how you deal with it. You resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And you say, well, okay, that's fine, but how do you do that? Well, Peter tells us, after describing the devil as a prowling lion seeking who may devour, he says, resist him firm in your faith. Resist him firm in faith. You see, Firm faith is the means of resistance. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul is speaking of here when he speaks of this breastplate, this 360 degree protection. He's saying what is essential to this is firmness in faith. The protection against the attacks of of the spiritual forces of darkness is that you have a faith that is sharp, that is hardened, that is full of conviction. That you know what you believe, that it's grounded in Scripture, that it's firm because it's been tested and it's been tried. This is how you have a firm faith. Remember, Peter says there's no shortcuts to that. He says you should thank God for the day of of fiery trial because that fiery trial is designed to make your faith hardened. And I know that no believer wants to have to go through that. I know that we'd rather get there the easy way to take some supplements maybe for faith maybe do something we could do, memorize a couple of Bible verses and we'll get that firm faith. But no, the Bible tells us that firm faith comes as God tries it and as he tests it and as he causes you to walk through fire. Something that happens when that happens is your faith is made firm. Your convictions are deepened. Your love of God grows. Your soundness is more sure. Well, the apostle says this is part of what it is. To put on this armor, it's to cultivate this faith. And then he speaks of the second element or component of it here is the breastplate of faith and of love. The breastplate of faith 
and of love. And of course, the love here is, is the love of God in Christ, which is poured out in our hearts. We're not born with love in us. We're not. We're born for a love of sinful affection. We're born for a love of ourselves. But the love which Scripture speaks of is not a love that is born in us. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 5. He says that the love of God which is in Christ is a love which has to be poured out. He says, shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He's talking about our conversion. He's talking about regeneration. He's talking about what happens to us when we come to Christ by faith, that we're united unto him. The love of God in Christ is poured out into our hearts. That's the love he's speaking of here. But that love is to be a love in action. I find it interesting that the last reference to to love here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is Paul saying to the Thessalonians, you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. The love is given from God. The love is shed abroad in our heart by God and through the Holy Spirit. And that love which is given to us is a love for us to enjoy, yes. But it is a love for us to put into action. So that we may love our neighbor. So that we may love each other in Christ. This is the breastplate then. This is the protection. And then the Apostle Paul adds something else to it. The helmet. The helmet. Again, we're thinking about the helmet of the Roman soldier. And it was made of bronze. and It was clunky. It was heavy. It was hot. It settled over the head with a skull cap. It had a bridge that came down over the nose. The eyes uh, were barely open, so it was hard for the soldier to look and to see anything to, uh, on the periphery to the left or the right. Basically, it made them be forward-looking when they fought. But that's the helmet he's thinking about, this helmet which extends over the whole head and goes down the back that protects from slings and arrows and sword thrusts and spears and so forth. And then he adds to it, what is it? Well, let's uh, hope of the day of salvation. You see, the, the thing that he calls upon the believer to put on their mind is the very thing which he's speaking about in the passage as a whole. The day of the Lord is the day of the hope of salvation. He is talking about it in a different connection. He's spoken about it as an event in which the, the dead in Christ will be rise, raised first. He speaks of the day of the Lord as a day of judgment, which comes as a thief of, uh, in the night against those who don't believe. And now he's speaking of it as the hope of the day of salvation, which is that day when our bodies are raised in immortality, clothed from on high, given every grace. You see, what the apostle was saying, the way that you fulfill the moral action while you're waiting for the day of the Lord and the return of Christ is to think upon the blessing of that day. 
I had an older gentleman say one time who I regarded as one of the most saintly men I ever met, who I know had millions and millions of dollars to his name, but never flaunted it. In fact, every time I saw him, he was wearing blue jeans and a cowboy shirt with boots. A sweet old man who'd grown up in the faith was in his late 80s, a practical man, not a pie in the sky one, but a practical man, a godly man. He raised a family, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Said one day when he thought about heaven, he said, it looks like the finish line's getting closer for me every day. With a twinkle in his eye, he said, you know, what I look forward to is not sinning anymore. That is the prospect of the hope of the day of salvation. It is the shedding, the putting off, the frustrating thing that happens in the life of the believer, the Apostle Paul spells out. The thing I don't want to do, I do. The thing which I do is not what I want. It's the shedding of the body of corruption, of sin, and being able to live according to how God redeemed you. It is putting off mortality and putting on immortality. It is putting off corruption, putting on incorruption. It is a day in which your feelings and thoughts and desires and appetites and ideas will be in sync perfectly because there won't be any old man clinging anymore. This is the hope of salvation he speaks of. No one will want that or strap on that helmet as a hope of salvation if they're happy right now. If you're content with yourself, you won't want that helmet on because it'll just remind you of what you're going to miss out on. See, Paul has uh, placed the, this calling upon the believer and he's heavily oriented it so that they'll be thinking about not now, but as the apostle has already described the Thessalonians back in chapter 1, they've turned from idols to the living and true God to wait for the Son who comes from heaven. I'm always struck by that statement because there was something about the Thessalonian experience of having been broken off from this gross pagan idolatry. That they found new life in Christ so thrilling and exhilarating and exciting and invigorating. They couldn't wait to meet their Redeemer when he comes again. It's a sobering thought to consider how radically reoriented their hearts and minds were made by grace. This is what he's speaking of here. He says, to those of you who had that experience, who have been redeemed by grace, here's what you're waiting for today and tomorrow and the next day. And this is what you're going to teach your children and your grandchildren. This is your life. We're not looking upon this age as ultimate. What we're looking for is the day of the Lord to come. Not as a thief in the night, but as a day when the hope of salvation 
comes to fruition and fulfillment. What do you need to do in order to behave like you believe this? What do you need to do to behave like you believe this? The apostle makes it very clear. You need to guard your heart and you need to guard your mind. I am so struck and I've enjoyed meditating upon this all week and I trust uh, you'll begin to enjoy to meditate upon this that the armor cloaks the two vital spiritual organs. The breastplate goes over the heart and the helmet goes over the mind. And the apostle says to the believer if you're to live like a Christian and not like the world this is what's essential. You're going to have to guard your heart and you're going to have to guard your mind. You see, the world is full of its siren songs and that will never go away. But what you have is different than a siren song. You have the word of God. And that would cause you to cultivate these three great, essential, foundational Christian graces, faith, hope, and love. Cause you to cultivate faith, hope, and love, and put them on as protective spiritual armor so that the trinkets, the vanity, the emptiness, the pretending of this age doesn't steal away your affections or distorts your mind. And so people of God, the apostle here calls us, he calls his church to the cultivation of these graces so that our minds and hearts will be properly oriented towards Jesus Christ and that great day of preparation. And as we practice this, we'll take up this call which he gives here. This call to sober living as we wait for our Lord. Father, we thank you for your word which uh, reorients our thoughts and our perspectives, our hopes, our aspirations, our goals, our dreams. Pray, Lord, that if your word needs to uh, cut through some of our thinking this morning and get rid of some of the waste and the garbage and the... Uh, the filth, that you'd, you'd use your word in that way to properly uh, build within us a mind and build with this, uh, within us affections which are consistent with the great beliefs and doctrines which we confess, knowing that uh, they're not just simply a set of abstract ideas or a list of moral duties, but they're wrapped around something quite tangible. And it's the day of the Lord and his return. We don't make all things new when the outworking of our redemption will be made complete. So help us as your people, as we set our thoughts upon those things, to have our minds and affections changed, and that would lead us to do what the apostle and what ultimately you've called us to do, the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, to let us live sober. Strengthen us to that task, and then, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.